Let's go inside Under my skin You come around The other way A dream I have spent Hello and welcome to another edition of Act in Context podcast. I am your co-host, John DeLynn, and I'm here with the ever-wonderful Jennifer Plum. Hey, Jennifer. Hello. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Great. It's a fine Sunday afternoon. We're doing a weekend broadcast today, and we're very excited to have with us um, a very special guest. Her name is Sonia Batten. Um, Sonia, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the invitation. I'm excited. We're very, very glad to have you. It's our pleasure. We're going to be talking about acceptance today. And Sonia, let me go ahead and read your bio. Is that okay? Uh, Sure. All right. (laughs) Here we go. Dr. Sonia Batten is a clinical psychologist who works on national mental health policy for the United States Department of Veteran Affairs. So the VA. She is also an adjunct associate professor of psychiatry in the Georgetown University School of Medicine and the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences School of Medicine in Washington, D.C. And that's where you're broadcasting out of, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm just about a mile from the White House, a few blocks from the Smithsonian right here in Washington, D.C. Oh, my goodness. Amazing. It says here that you completed an NIMH-sponsored postdoctoral fellowship in traumatic stress at the VA's National Center for PTSD and received specialty training in interpersonal violence treatment and research at the National Crime Victim Center of the Medical University of South Carolina. And, 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 important, and importantly, um, that uh, fellowship in Boston, that's where I first got to meet Jen Plum. That's right. So. Right. You were one of my first entrees into ACT. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Ah, now it's all coming together. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Baden earned her doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Nevada, Reno. That sounds familiar. Yep where she participated in intensive ACT clinical training and research initiatives with Dr. Stephen Hayes, whom our listeners heard uh, in the immediately previous episode. Is that right? That's right. All right. Dr. Batten is an active researcher, and she conducts ACT trainings and professional presentations in the U.S. and internationally. Um, She is the author of the recently released book, Essentials of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and we will make sure and include a link to that book on the website. So, Dr. Batten, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks, guys. I'm, I'm really excited. I think this is going to be fun. Well, good. Well, um, we usually start out without talking directly about ACT, but instead just by giving our guests a chance to kind of tell us a little bit about themselves and specifically kind of what brought you into the world of acceptance and commitment therapy. We have a little bit of a preview because you've already told us a bit, but why don't you tell us a bit about what brought you to psychology and then what brought you to ACT? Uh, Sure. Um, You know, I feel like I'm one of these people who is very lucky that what I thought I wanted to do when I was a, a young person turned out to actually be something that I really love doing now. 
And um, I, I decided in high school, I had some um, classes and some independent study in high school in psychology, and I thought it was pretty interesting and, um, and seemed like something I, w- I would like to do. And so I went straight into college um, deciding that I was going to major in psychology. And um, while I was in college, I did a, um, an internship for a, like a semester where I worked on the inpatient psychiatric ward locally where I was going to school. And, um, and one of the things that happened there, you know, because I was just an undergraduate, I, I couldn't really do anything particularly useful on the psychiatric ward. So I really just listened to the patients there and talked to them and um, and read their charts and just learned from them about, you know, what had sort of brought them to this point in their lives. And what I found over and over again, especially with the women on the psychiatric ward that semester, um, is that virtually all of them had had some sort of interpersonal violence history, um, had either been sexually abused as children or raped as adults or been in domestic violence situations. And and for me, that really was a turning point. It wasn't that I didn't know that those things happened to people, but I really didn't know that they happened um, with that level of frequency. And mm. so mm-hmm. it um, that, you know, so that really opened my eyes to the importance of you know, potentially traumatic events in people's lives. Mm. And, um, and so I decided when I applied to graduate school that I wanted to go somewhere where I could really focus on interpersonal violence. And so applied to graduate schools all over the United States, um, but ended up having the good fortune to come to University of Nevada, Reno to work with Victoria Follette. And um, within my first year at the University of Nevada, Reno, About halfway through my first year, I attended an ACT workshop with Steve Hayes and Kelly Wilson up at Lake Tahoe, and it was really, really moving um, and and fascinating and sort of opened my eyes to how these processes that we were talking about theoretically in psychology, how they applied to me as well. And... um, and I was pretty young when I started graduate school. And I got to say, I didn't have a particularly high level of, of personal insight. And, uh, and so going to the ACT workshop really, I think, was one of the um, turning points in terms of me understanding sort of how different things in, in my own life, um, specifically at that point, the, the fact that my, my dad died of cancer when I was 15. And so I spent you know, from 11 to 15, um, dealing with a very ill parent, um, and, and hadn't really, you know, worked my way through that yet. And so, um, so, you know, during that time of graduate school, recognized more and more about how my own experiences were affecting me in the present moment, and, and sort of, um, you know, had the experience of, not only learning how to do act and growing professionally, but also really growing personally at the same time. So, you know, those five years that I was in Reno, um, from when I was 20 to 25, I, I was not only learning how to be an act therapist and researcher, but I was also, um, you know, becoming an adult and uh, and really sort of, I think one of the things for me is that act really has influenced how I see the world. Um, you know, not just how I do therapy or what I like to study in terms of research, but 
I really can't see the world except through the lens of these principles and processes that we talk about in ACT. Hmm. Awesome. Wow. You started grad school at, did you say 19? At 20, yeah. 20. I was in a big hurry. I was in a big hurry back then. I'm not sure exactly (laughs) why. Wow. That's really cool. Okay. So you were, so you were there. Um, what, what years were you at Reno then? Um, I guess I was there from 94 to 99. Ah, and, and yeah. So right when, when there was lots and lots happening at Reno and Reno was a really, I mean, not the city of Reno, but university of Nevada, Reno was a really special place to be then. Um, our graduate program, I'm, I'm sure it really is still a cool place to be as Jen can tell you, but, um, you know, it, it was a, a very, you know, special sense of community um, among the students and, and with the faculty and and really, um, I think, a great model for, um, you know, I remember my supervision experiences there with Victoria and Steve and, um, you know, senior graduate students like Kelly Wilson or Robin Walzer really modeled for me the um, the accepting and open perspective that I think we strive for in the therapeutic relationship in ACT and in the supervisory relationship. And when I've talked to people who went to school other places, um, it you know, I thought that's just sort of how all graduate schools were, because um, that's all that's all I knew. Um, but as I've, you know, met uh, people from other, you know, who have studied other places, I realized just just how unique and, and special that that time in Reno was. Sounds great. Uh, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for that introduction. Um, and uh, sounds like we should go ahead and just dive in to uh, to the main topic for today. Um, Something that Sonia's had sounds like. Sonia's had a lot of personal experience sort of coming from a place of um, working on sort of living the processes in her own life, which is something that I think, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about, about um, doing this work as coming from that place yourself as a therapist, as a human being. So very cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, and, and I guess that I would also just sort of throw in, in terms of my specific um, clinical and research experience in ACT, it's been very much um, focused on working with individuals who have been through traumatic events, who might be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, who might have substance abuse problems. So, um, so as we go through, some of the examples I'll be likely to give will be focused in those sort of content example areas because that's what I've had the most experience with. Mm-hmm. Awesome. How, how long have you worked in affiliation with the VA? Um, I actually started working for the VA the, the first time in 1995. Um, it was my, my first summer um, in between my first and second year of graduate school. And I got a, a summer position there as an intern and have worked there off and on for about 10 years total combined, if you add up the time. So I, I love working for the VA. It's a, it's a great place to work and um and getting to uh, to work with our veterans is is just such a privilege. Mm, that's going to make this um, that's going to make this discussion of uh, of acceptance, I think, pretty powerful. So I'm I'm excited to hear the stories. Um, yeah. Well, why don't we start just at the very top? Uh, a lot of people, you know, act bears the name of acceptance. 
So it's it's clearly a pretty important part of ACT. And and a lot of people kind of like to think of acceptance as the first um, you know, process uh, in ACT, even though maybe others kind of don't like to think of any particular sequence. But why don't we just hit it off the top and have you tell us how you kind of define acceptance um, uh, and um, kind of what it is and what it isn't. Sure. And, and I'll sort of, I'll, I'll come around the corner to get to acceptance and, and talk a little bit about um, the rationale that sort of leads us to why acceptance is such an important process. And then, and then I'll maybe define it a little bit more. Um, Basically, and I, I'm sure you guys have covered this in, in some of the initial podcasts so far, but from an ACT perspective, we see that many of the problems in living that, that bring people to therapy or that you know get people to a, a choice point in their lives where they realize that something needs to change, um, many of those problems are related to an unwillingness to experience their own thoughts or feelings or memories, etc., and, you know, it's it's completely natural to want to avoid things that are unpleasant or aversive. Um, but things like pain and loss and anxiety and disappointment, those are, those are all part of the human experience. And, and so we can't really avoid them in any long term way. And um, and so within ACT, one of the things that we try to introduce is this idea that maybe um Maybe the struggle, maybe these efforts that people have been going to to try to avoid or not have to experience some of those unpleasant private events, those thoughts, feelings, memories, etc. That that maybe that's part of the problem. And um, and so what we what we introduce is this idea that that um, that maybe there's another option that if we could work on. Um, something different other than trying to control or avoid those experiences that, um, that it might, um, it might free us up to be able to do the things that are important to us. Okay. Um, And, and yeah. And so I guess like one of the concepts that is pretty fundamental to act, to understand, and that's sort of the, the inverse of acceptance or willingness is what we call experiential avoidance or avoidance. And, um, and within ACT, we really see that this process of avoidance, of not being willing to experience your thoughts, feelings, memories, et cetera, um, that, that that really is a significant problem. And so um, we talk about experiential avoidance as a process um, where individuals engage in strategies, and I'll give the technical definition, and then I'll, then I'll break it down a little bit. Great. Um, we're in where individuals engage in strategies that are um, designed to um, change the frequency or the experience of those private events. Um, and, uh, and then they do things to, to try to make them um, go away or to not have to experience them. And, um, and although that may work in the short term, you know, it may be that you're able to distract yourself or, you know, numb your feelings out for a while, that, that in the long term, um, that's just not a very workable solution to try to deal with those things. So, so, so um, Sonia, why don't you give us maybe a, a few examples, pick maybe like the five most common DSM disorders, we'll just say for now, and tell us 
some of the common ways that people would engage in experiential avoidance in your experience? Just to kind okay. of just kind of put some meat on the bones. Yeah, exactly, exactly, because it's an abstract um, principle that I'm yeah. talking about. So, so we really see avoidance as as being key to a lot of the things that um, that end up being called, you know, diagnosable disorders, but also some of just you know pretty common problems in living. So, um, so here's an example: um, panic disorder with agoraphobia. Okay. So that's that's a um, that's an uh, you know set of problems where people have. Um, panic type symptoms, panic attacks, and um, and then they start to narrow down their experiences so that um, they only stay in settings that they think are going to be safe. So somebody with um, with panic disorder actually does lots and lots of avoidance because um, you know because if you've ever had a panic attack, and I've had two, I had one once on top of a mountain where I got completely. Um, uh, sort of overwhelmed with being being up high with no you know nothing to hold on to and fall off the mountain and okay. one time in a dentist and one time in a dentist's office oh, um, yeah. with the with Oof. the with the Novocaine Nova so um, and I felt like I couldn't breathe so if you've ever had a panic attack I mean it's pretty it's pretty unpleasant they're pretty intense and, yeah they're they're pretty intense and so um, so what happens is if somebody is having panic attacks over and over is that it's so unpleasant that your first instinct is to try to not have to experience those sensations again. And so, um, you know, people will do things like try to, um, you know, try to force the feelings to go away, um, you know, try to um, sort of bear through it, try to change their breathing, um, try to distract themselves, you know, sort of anything to get through that moment. Um, but then the larger problem comes in, in the in-between time where people are anticipating that that might happen again. And so they're constantly checking for signs that, um, that maybe they're having some of those panicky feelings. And um, they, you know, do anything they can to not have to experience those physical sensations, like maybe popping a pill or have a drink or you know, um, distract yourself. But then there are also sort of these things where your life starts to shut down because maybe, you know, the panic attack happened in, um, you know, in some sort of social setting. And so then you think, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to go in settings where there are a lot of people again. And so maybe that starts with, parties or social activities, but then maybe it extends to, well, maybe I don't want to go to those meetings at work anymore. Maybe it's going to happen there. Well, maybe I don't want to go to the grocery store anymore because there are a lot of people around when you're in the grocery store. And so, so that avoidance spreads and spreads. And so what, what might make a lot of sense in the short term um, over time sort of constricts and, and shuts down um, you know, people's behavior and their, and their coping. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, and so does it make it, does, how does, how does that affect the original symptoms usually in your experience? Yeah. Well, so, um, so there's actually, I mean, it's not just my experience. There's actually a lot of data to show that experiential avoidance is actually related to a number of different problems. Um, so panic and anxiety is obviously, um, uh, you know, something that's pretty highly correlated with experiential avoidance. Um, but depressive symptoms, um, we have reason to believe that 
avoidance is um, is also one of the factors um, that we find in research that sort of mediates or influences the likelihood that if you experience a stressful or traumatic event, if you cope with it in an avoidant way, that tends to be associated with more problems in the long term. So there's actually a pretty significant evidence base to show that um, that avoidance, uh, you know, does lead to an increase in problems or more significant problems in the long run. Okay. So, so it can actually, you're thinking that you're making things better, but oftentimes it actually increases the frequency or the severity of the panic. Is that right? In the, in the case of right. panic, in the case of panic. Yeah, in the case, right, right. Um, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it's a really tricky thing because, we um, were really most influenced by short-term consequences, not the long-term consequences. So if you have multiple experiences where, you know, you, um, you take a pill and it makes the anxiety go down or you, um, you know, avoid a situation and the anxiety goes down, you know, we pay much more attention to the fact that you're able to do these things. And in the short term, maybe the, the sensations, the anxiety, whatever else you're struggling with, maybe you can make it go away. Um, and so it seems like it's working in the short term. And it really, um, and this is why it's so important oftentimes in the early part of therapy and ACT to help people draw out this, um, the larger awareness that these things they've been trying, um, maybe they're not working so well. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, and just just to briefly touch, so like with depression, sleeping could, could sleeping be conceptualized as experiential experiential avoidance? Is that right? Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so, you, like the example of somebody who um, is depressed or is anxious, and so they um, they sleep a lot. You know, they they would rather go back to bed and sort of, you know, literally pull the covers up um, rather than have to focus on what's, uh, you know, and face what's going on in the moment. Um, you know, I talked about alcohol, drug use, mm-hmm. avoiding avoiding situations, avoiding being around certain people or things that remind you of things that are unpleasant. Um, you know, in the case of somebody with um, significant pain problems, avoiding, um certain activities because they're painful. And I'm not talking about things that are, you know, physically harmful, but things where when a, you know, your physician has checked you out and said, it's not actually harmful for you to get up and and walk around. It's actually good for you. Um, But in the short term, it, it feels uncomfortable. Um, We find that people with chronic pain often will, um, will stay immobile and try to be less active, even when the better thing would be to be more active because it's really uncomfortable to be active. So there, there are a variety of different ways that um, that avoidance can show up. Jen, any other common, um, just real quick examples of experiential avoidance in, in your clinical work? You know, Sonia touched on the big ones for me because um, okay. I work with chronic pain and I've done, you know, anxiety and depression. Um, some of the more subtle ones maybe like... Um, 
you know, sometimes people might pick fights with, with others around them or something because they don't want to actually deal with, uh, you know, like uncomfortable things about sort of asserting a need or, um, or, or, or sort of trying to understand a partner's perspective so that something could happen in the relationship. Um, or, you know, to break up with someone because they're afraid the person might leave them, you know, uh, um, you know, so there's a lot of subtle ways that we can engage. So you avoid in. intimacy, you avoid right, getting along right. so you don't have to have the risk of, of breakup or pain. Sure. Cause you know, we all know that, you know, loss, losing someone we care about is really painful and we can get stuck in that place of, of fearing the loss of that, even if that's not actually happening. So mm, interesting. Okay. So this, this is, this probably has some pretty broad application then, this acceptance and, and experiential avoidance thing. Yeah, yeah, we, we think we think it does, both conceptually and in terms of what, what the research shows us at this point. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty broadly applicable. Now, it doesn't apply to everything. Um, it applies to a wide range of things, but obviously there could be other situations where What's more important is that the person doesn't have the right skills to deal with a given situation or, um, you know, or really needs help doing problem solving. I mean, there, there are other things that can lead to right. problems, but, um, but avoidance is, is really, we think, pretty broadly applicable. Okay. Well, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to sort of um, invoke a, a recent example in my experience of something that happened to then ask you a question about misconceptions or misunderstandings um, about acceptance. Uh, so I, I was I was in with a client and um, the client was experiencing panic. And I we had not even gotten to the point yet where we had talked about acceptance, but the, I think the client knew somehow that the, that the name of the therapy that we um, you know would be would be using was acceptance and commitment therapy. So sort of on her own volition, she experienced a panic attack uh, during the week, and she just decided, I am going to accept my panic. I am going to just accept how horrible I feel. And she ended up having one of the worst experiences of her life. And she came back into the session and said, I don't want to accept it. This is terrible. This is the worst thing that I've ever felt. And the last thing I want to do is just accept how terrible I'm feeling. So let me just use that little example as a jumping off point to tell us maybe what some of the common misconceptions are or the misunderstandings are about acceptance and sort of what it, maybe what it isn't so that we can dig more into what it is. Right. Yeah, that's, it's a great point. And I think that, um, that your example, it um, leads me to think of, of several different things. So, you know, your, your direct question is, what are some misconceptions about acceptance? So some misconceptions about acceptance oftentimes are that it's the same thing as just like grin and bear it, um, you know, just buck up, um, uh, you know, that you should want to experience it. You know, when we talk about being willing to experience um, a thought or memory or emotion, um, we're not talking about wanting to have it. Or liking um, it, right? <laughs> no, you don't yeah. have to like it. Yeah. Um, absolutely not. Um, but can you can you be open to it? And um, and so those those are some common mis misconceptions that it's, you know, that you want it, that you like it. Or, um, or that, you know, it's something that, um, you know, that you should just sort of like um, struggle through or just, you know, sit through. And, and the other thing is, is um, 
you know, sort of thinking about um, um, acceptance as, um, um, and I'm losing my train of thought here for a second. Um, let me think of what I was going to say. Um, that, uh, well, now I've completely lost my train of thought. No, it's okay. We'll so come, so we'll we, were talk, we were talking about the misconceptions and um, the client that says, I don't want to accept it. I don't, I don't like this. This is terrible. And, and you were saying that doesn't mean you have to like it or want it to happen. Is that right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and the other thing I was going to say is that, um, you know, I think that that the example that you brought up is maybe, um, you know, what happened with your client is that she sort of jumped into something without having some of the other processes that we talk about in ACT um, there. And um, so when we think about how willingness or acceptance ties into the other, you know, five act processes that we're talking about, um, you know, I, I think the biggest one that jumps out at me about the example you've just given is that it sounds like she may not yet have been at a place of sort of being able to um, find that self as context, that observer perspective, and that she might still have been um, having these experiences from the perspective of being sort of fused or defined by them, um, mm. sort of experiencing the panic as if that was the reality in the moment. That's who she was. That's all there was to be experienced without first having that observer perspective of being able to step back and recognize, um, you know, that that she's she's a whole person and right now she's having the experience of not being able to breathe or, you know, other panic sensations. And, um, and I think, so I think that, or, you know, she may have been having thoughts about, I'm going to die. I'm never going to get through this. What is my stupid therapist having me doing? Um, you know, and, uh, and sort of not being able to diffuse from those in the way that we talk about diffusion. So I think that the example is a really good one because it, um, you know, it, it shows that all of these things that, that you guys are going to be talking about over the course of the podcast, they, they really interrelate. And although we sort of take them apart as separate things, um, just so you can sort of talk about them one at a time, they really all go together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, the other mis the other misconception that I, um, it came back to me what I was thinking was um, sort of the difference between acceptance not being um, not being accepting that um, that you have to accept the situation for what it is. So what we're not saying is that you know you need to work on acceptance. And so if you are in a an abusive relationship, you need to just accept that. Or if you're in a situation where there is intolerance or racism or prejudice, that you need to accept that and not do anything about it. We're not talking about acceptance of um, circumstances and having to let them be what they are. We're talking about acceptance of the things that you don't have control over, which are those thoughts, feelings, memories, bodily sensations. So, so anything inside your skin, essentially, versus like yeah, things outside, where you could move your body, you could leave the situation, you could do things that might be sort of healthy or in line with your values, um, with uh, with sort of your hands and feet and things like that. But anything inside your skin is what we're talking about accepting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. 
So how do you how let's spend just a little bit of time talking about how you set this up with the client. How do you kind of give them the overview of acceptance? What do you say to them? Are there some metaphors or some exercises you use to help kind of illustrate um, acceptance? Yeah. So I think oftentimes what I do is I I set up what I've been talking about so far about you know, the fact that um, although control often makes sense in the short term, turns out that that there, you know, might be some long term consequences and see if we can connect for that individual what his or her experience is about whether or not control or avoidance has worked in the long term. Um, and then if we've sort of gotten to that place and um, and if I'm ready to start to introduce the concepts of of acceptance or willingness, I'm, I might start off by, by saying, you know, um, so I, I want to talk to you about um, what I, where I think we might, we might be going with this, which is that, um, you know, if control or avoidance haven't worked in the long term, maybe we need to work on finding another alternative. And, um, and, and this, you know, I'm going to suggest that this alternative um, might be something that, you know, it, and I would choose different words working with different clients, um, maybe willingness, maybe acceptance might be something different depending on, might be sit with, um, you know, different language based on what I think is going to resonate with the in individual. Um, and then, you know, talking about, and I wonder if there could be a different way to approach these um, these private experiences, you know, your thoughts and feelings and memories. And, um, and I'm not going to ask you to do this right away. Um, but what I'm wondering is, I guess, over time, would you be willing to try some different ways to respond when those, when those sensations or experiences show up? And, and first sort of getting their permission and, and seeing if they would be willing to even explore some different options. Um, and, you know, and I think that it's a pretty um, abstract sort of thing. And so, um, so, you know, I've certainly had clients say like, okay, I mean, I get what you're saying. I guess that makes sense, but I still don't have any idea what you're talking about. Like <laughs> right. what, yeah. what I, exactly. Yeah. Tell me, tell me how to do it. Tell me, tell me what it is right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Exactly. And, and that's, and that's sort of the problem with acceptance is that you can't, you can't just directly instruct somebody about how to do it, you know? Um, I mean, I can I could say, like, here's how you paint the wall or, you know, here's how you uh, cook an egg. Um, and I can give you very direct sort of instructions. But something more experiential like acceptance, you, you can't just sort of directly instruct. So I would first give some, you know, some um, explanation to at least sort of have some idea of where we're going so that, you know, it's not too mysterious. But um, but I guess I would suggest to the client that, you know, maybe what we need to do is work on this together and find some examples of things we can practice in session to um, to sort of get to that experience. And, you know, I'm, I'll just jump in. And this is backing up just a tiny bit. I, I've been yeah. doing a lot of OCD work in the OCD protocol. You mentioned kind of the workability of um, or the non-workability of avoidance. And the this has been an important setup for acceptance for me in this OCD work. What we actually do, we whiteboard out. We have a whiteboard and we say, okay, you've got these obsessions. What are all the things that you've done to try and control them? And so we list all these compulsions. 
And so, you know, we make this big list of five or 10 things, you know, I unlock the door and lock it back up, or I wash my hands 40 times. And, and we list all these uh, compulsions out. And then we ask them, you know, well, how, how effective of a job has, have these compulsions done? Have they really helped it? Have they made it better? And, and of course, they wouldn't be in there. It's a bit of a setup because they wouldn't be in there if, if these compulsions had worked for them. So, of course, they say, no, it's been terrible. It's, it's worse than it's ever been now that I've been trying to, you know, not accept and, and kind of manage these compulsions. And, and then, and, and sort of once, and this is just this idea of creative hopelessness that, um, that kind of comes into play. And it's a tricky thing to do because you want to, you want to get them where they're kind of feeling like uh, this just isn't working and I don't know the solution. And once you've done that, then when you say, well, let's try something different, maybe they're a little bit more prepared. Is that, is that kind of how you approach it? Sonia? Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very similar to, to what I would do. And, you know, it's actually fun to do that in, um, in group therapy too. When you have a, a group of people who have maybe similar um, types of issues that are bringing them into treatment. And um, so have, I've done this the most with, uh, with groups of individuals who are working on substance abuse problems and working with them on doing exactly that, you know, getting a big whiteboard out and, um, you know, identifying all of the various things that they've done that, that might be avoidance and then trying to look at, you know, what are the thing, what is it that ties those things together? Um, and they'll, you know, they'll come up with different ways of talking about it. Sometimes, um, sometimes control, um, you know, maybe avoidance, but, you know, usually it's more like, uh, there are things that work in the short term, but really just, you know, but not in the long term. Or there are things that, you know, I do to get through the moment, but they really just make things worse. Mm-hmm. And that can be a really validating experience for people to recognize that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, that it's not their fault that they've been trying to manage the experiences that they've had in this way, that other people have tried the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, John, I think you had asked about like specific, um, specific things I might do in therapy. So I might give a metaphor. Um, one of my favorite metaphors is, um, is one that's about um, uh, walking through a swamp. So if you sort of imagine that you're... Um, you're, you know, walking through an area and you get to this big, nasty swamp in front of you. And, um, and you know, because sometimes when people come, come to therapy or even if they're working on things on their own, when they get to the point of really um, dealing with the problem that's at hand, it can feel like, you know, what they're being asked to do is just to come, you know, muck around in a, in a really gross, nasty um, swamp. And so, you know, I try to really get people to imagine, you know, you're, you're here at the edge of a swamp. It, um, smells bad. It looks really murky and dark and you can't see what's in there. Um, there might be, you know, there might be creatures in that swamp. And, um, and so what it, what I'm asking you to do can feel like I'm asking you to just step into this swamp and, uh, you know, and be in the midst of a, a whole bunch of, um, pretty unpleasant stuff. And, uh, and this is one of the metaphors that you can use to sort of tease out some of that, what willingness is and what it isn't. 
mm-hmm. um, because you know, because the the question is that um, I'm I'm not asking you to want to be in the swamp. I'm not asking you to like to be in the swamp. But I guess what I'm asking is, you know, can you notice that if you don't just look down and look right at what's in front of you, but if you can look up for a moment and look out across sort of the vista, what if there's some place that you want to go that's on the other side of this swamp? Like, mm-hmm. and whatever imagery would work for that person, a mountain, a forest, a field, somebody that they love, you know, that the thing that you want to get to is on the other side of the swamp. And what if it's the case that, um, that you're going to need to go through this And you're going to have to be in contact with whatever is there in the swamp that's between here and there. But I'm I'm not asking you to just, you know, like be mired in the swamp for the hell of it. Mm -hmm. Um, What I'm suggesting is what if what if it were the case that you needed to walk through this stuff and be in contact with what's there in the swamp for the purpose of getting to the other side of it and getting to what's important to you in life. So so what if the client says, no, I am here for you to make this go away. I don't want, I don't want to accept this. I don't want to walk through a nasty, nappy swamp. I want you to make these feelings go away. Yeah. And you know, the great thing about act is that you can use a lot of irreverence. So I probably would, um, would smile and um, nod at the person and say, yeah. And you know what, if I knew how to do that, I would do it. Um, And but you know what? My guess is you've been trying really, really hard at this over a long period of time. And lots of other people have, too. And if there were a way to just magically make it go away, I mean, heck, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd be a billionaire if I, if I knew how to do that. Um, you know, and I, I guess what I'm suggesting is that you've been trying that for a long time now to just make it go away. Um, and I totally understand the impulse to, to not want to have those experiences. And, um, you know, and if you want to keep trying that, you can. Um, but based on my experience and, and what you're telling me about your own experience, I just have a sense that, that that's a fool's errand and it's not going to work. So if we're going to work together, um, I'm suggesting that that we look at this from from a different perspective, and it is always up to you whether whether you choose to go this way or not. And I and I don't want to belabor this point, but like, what if a client's just really disappointed with that? Do do they ever just say, "You mean I really have to live with this these feelings for the rest of my life"? Like, do you ever have them just get discouraged about that? Um, I mean, I think what I would say to that is that, you know, I would I would make sure that also I'm validating, um, you know, how difficult that experience is. Mm-hmm. So I I understand why they would want that. And um, and, you know, I can I can certainly relate to wanting that stuff to go away. Um, and what I'm suggesting is not that there's nothing you can do about it and you just have to suck it up and live with it. What I'm suggesting is that maybe there might be like a completely different set of things that we can work on. You know, what if, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm saying, I don't know how we can make that anxiety or those sensations or feelings go away, but that doesn't mean that I'm saying that we can't do anything about it. I mean, I think there's actually a lot that we can do. Um, but it's going to be, it's just going to be a little bit different than how you've approached it so far. And, um, and so, 
you know, w- would you be willing to, to try something different, um, you know, for, for a few sessions at least? And, and then let's have a, you know, sort of take stock and you can tell me whether you think that what we're doing has the potential to move you closer to, to where you want to go in your life. Um, and, and so, so I want to make sure that, that, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of suggesting that trying to control thoughts and feelings probably isn't going to work and I can't really sign on to that agenda, but that doesn't mean that there's not more that we could do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, try to, try to move people into at least a sense of curiosity, um, even if they don't totally, totally understand exactly what I'm suggesting. Mm. So, 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 I mean, I, John, my, my general experience is that, um, that as long as, you know, I'm suggesting that there are things we can do, I, I, I haven't generally had the experience where people get so frustrated where they say, well, I, I you know, I'm just not interested. Mm-hmm. Well, what Have they ever asked you something to the effect of, uh, is it reasonable for me to hope that, that my, that the severity or the frequency of, of my thoughts or feelings will decrease over time through this therapy? Yeah, you know, anything is possible. It, it may very well be the case that your symptoms will go down, um, or maybe they won't, but it is possible. What I'm suggesting, though, is is that maybe there's a bigger prize out there. Maybe there's a bigger prize than, than just making the symptoms go away. Mm. Maybe there's something that's about, you know, getting you the life that that is important to you getting you more of, of what's meaningful to you in your life and getting you closer to those things that are important to you. And, um, and so, yeah, is it possible that, that your symptoms could get better? It's totally possible. Um, and what I'm suggesting is that we not work on that as the, the direct thing that we're focusing on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love the way you just said that. It reminds me of um, uh, a metaphor that, I think I've used in the that area this sort of control is the problem sort of segment of act, which is the idea that you know maybe you've been playing this game for reducing your symptoms or avoiding them or managing them, but maybe there's this other game we could play that's sort of playing for a life of vitality, sort of like you're saying this larger life, this sort of bigger prize. And if we focus our attention on sort of like living for vitality, um, you know who knows what happens over here on the on the symptom side. It may go up, it may go down, but at least maybe you're getting something in return for doing that. Um, that might be sort of more than just saying symptoms have gone down because then sort of, well, what, what would you do then? You know, like symptoms are gone. Yeah. Well, what would you want to be doing? So usually there's a purpose that someone's coming to treatment for. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. That was yeah. very good. That was and, very and, good. Yeah. And so, you know, it brings us back to that point about how, how does acceptance tie into the other processes? You know, and I talked a little bit about how it, how it ties into self as context and diffusion. But I think what we're talking about here is how it ties into to values and committed action, mm-hmm. right? Because, Absolutely. Because we're not talking about acceptance just for the sake of acceptance. We're talking about what if we can work on acceptance for the purpose of helping you get closer to your values, to get closer to living a life that's meaningful for you and being able to more consistently you know, um, engage in committed action that is based on values rather than based on avoiding having to feel things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. So it seems like acceptance ties in 
pretty much all the processes. Yeah, uh, it, to- it, it totally does. And, you know, and the one that I haven't mentioned is, um, is, you know, contact with the present mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. And, um, and, and that's really, you know, I mean, you can only do acceptance from that perspective of like contact with the present moment. Um, if you're focused on um, the past or if you're focused on the future, then, then you're not working on acceptance. You can be thinking about the past or the future, but it's all happening here in this moment. So you have to be mindful and recognize what's going on um, so that you can choose to, to be in contact with what's there rather than distracting with sort of past or, or future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So we, we talked about, oh, Jen, were you going to say something? Uh, no, go ahead. So we talked about the swamp uh, metaphor. Are there any other, and this can be for Sonia or, or Jennifer, any other common metaphors or exercises that, that, that help, uh, help the clients either remember or kind of feel what acceptance is, is, is all about? Any others come to mind? Well, you know, another one that that I do pretty frequently um, that's more of a physical uh, metaphor, a physical exercise, um, because, again, you know, it can be a very abstract thing that we're talking about. And um, and to try to sort of distinguish what acceptance is or isn't um, is a physical metaphor. So I might get out like some little... um, you know, the note cards that are made of like the, you know, that thick paper um, that are, um, you know, small sort of that fit in your hand. So little note cards. And I might um, work with the client on first identifying, you know, what's something that they're struggling with right now. So a thought or a feeling, um, you know, so um, so maybe if we have somebody who has panic, um, you know, maybe asking them, okay, so you know, when we're talking about your panic symptoms, what's the first thing that shows up? Well, um, you know, my my chest gets tight. So you might write on the first card, chest gets tight. Um, And and then I ask them, all right, so and then when your chest starts getting tight, you know, what what thought goes through your head? Um, Okay, so the thought is, I can't take this, you know, so you write down, I can't take this. And, uh, and what shows up next? Well, I have trouble breathing. Okay, so then you write down trouble breathing. And you, and you go through this over over and over until you get, I don't know, somewhere between six and ten cards, what, whatever, you know, seems to sort of get the, the heart of the matter. And you might ask things like um, thoughts, feelings, bodily sensations, um, images that come to mind, memories that show up um, when all this is present urges that the person has so that you get sort of a good collection of um, what shows up, you know, related to that panic. And, um, and then, you know, I ask the client if they're going to be if they would be willing to um, do something a little bit sort of odd with me. And if they say yes, um, you know, what I ask them is, so, you know, imagine that we're in two chairs, and we're sort of sitting across from each other. And I would move the chair close enough that, you know, we're within a few feet of one another. And, and I would, you know, suggest that maybe we can practice some different ways of responding um, to these thoughts and sensations, et cetera, when they show up. And um, so I might ask them 
first to, um, you know, so I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to toss each of these note cards one at a time over to you. And what I want you to do is I want you to bat them away or move your body or do whatever you have to do to not be in touch with these cards as they come your way. And if the client, you know, is willing to do this with me. So what I do is I'll go through one by one. And so I'll take the first one and I'll read out loud what it says, you know, chest tight. And, um, and so I'll toss it gently over toward the client. Um, and then the person will try to, you know, bat it away, knock it on the floor, move their legs so that it doesn't touch their legs and do that over and over with each of the cards. And when we get to the end, sort of ask the client what that experience was like. So you kind of throw them, and, quick, you kind of throw them quickly so that they're like having to swat them away in kind of quick succession. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, not like a, you know, a, a tennis ball feeder that's, that's on <laughs> high speed or anything like that. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, sort of, you know, chest tight and then toss and then the person bats it away. And then I say the next one, you know, so maybe with a second or two in between each one. Right. Um, so, you know, but with enough time for me to read out what the next one is, have the person notice that that's the one coming their way next and then toss it over. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, have them sort of talk about what that was like. And, um, and they, you know, will say things like, Oh, well, um, you know, it was, it was fine. It was making, it made me pretty nervous as they kept coming, you know, but I was able to bat them away. I was able to do something about it. It was okay. And then you might ask a question like, okay. And so as we were doing that, um, you know, do you think that you would have been able to do something that was important to you at the same time? And and you want to tailor that to what is important to the client. So like if what's been getting in the way um, or what these problems have been getting in the way of, like um, giving a talk at work or being connected to their kids, you know, do you think while you were batting those away, would you be, have been able to give that presentation at work, you know? Would you have been able to read a book to your kids? And they'll generally say, well, no, I was too focused on, I had to make sure those didn't touch me. Okay, uh. cool. And, and then, you know, we sort of gather the cards back up and I say, okay, so now I, I want you to, to do this in a different way. This time, what I want you to do is I want you to um, cover your eyes and with your hands and um, just try to distract yourself however you can. Um, and you're not going to actively fight with these things, but I want you not to look at them, um, not to try to notice what's going on and to, you know, distract yourself as much as possible mm. and then do this and then do the same process, you know, um, of calling out what's on each of the card and then sort of gently tossing it over to the person, um, and, you know, doing that and then asking them after that. So, and what was that experience like? Mm. Well, you know, it was, um, it was uh, upsetting. It was sort of upsetting because I wasn't doing anything. Um, but after a while, I was able to sort of check out and I was, you know, distracting myself thinking about, you know, um, something that happened yesterday or, you know, whatever they were able to distract themselves with. Okay. Oh, and, okay. And then, and then asking that same question. And, and while you were in that stance, how, how would you have been able to give that talk at work or would you have been able to read a story to your child? Ah. Well, well, no, because I, you know, I was, I was focused on just checking out of that moment. So distraction um, is not good. You're saying. 
Well, you know, I, I wouldn't say that distraction is not good as a universal thing. I mean, I think that distraction, um, you know, if you're going to get your tooth drilled at the dentist and it's a one-time thing, um, putting your headphones on and listening to, um, you know, your favorite piece of music while your tooth is being drilled to distract yourself, I don't think that's a problem. Right. I mean, what I'm, su- what I'm suggesting is that if distraction or you know, numbing out your emotions or, you know, finding different ways to check out of the present moment. If that's your characteristic, most common way of dealing with um, stress or, you know, difficult situations, I think that is likely to be a problem. Does that distinction make sense? Mm-hmm. Totally. Right. And it goes back to the sort of definition of experiential avoidance too, which is that it's not that avoidance per se is bad. It's just when doing so creates more problems. Um, or it could even even be harmful, like for example, using drugs or something like that, right? Yeah. Right. When mm-hmm. it's when it's sort of a pervasive way of responding, as opposed to a way that somebody mindfully chooses, you know, in order to get through a certain moment. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's something that is just so common and routine, and is the characteristic way that somebody responds, that's when it's likely to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, okay. I'm yeah, guessing so you do a third. Do you do a third, uh, a third phase of that exercise? Yeah, I don't just end it there. Okay, no, I'm excited. <laughs> so, so, so the third step, um, and you could actually do more. You can, you know, you can come up with all sorts of different variations, but three is about enough um, to sort of show some different things. Um, and so, in the third stance, what I ask them to do is to, you know, sit in the chair. Um, you know, with their uh, their feet flat on the floor and to put their arms sort of in their lap um, with palms facing up. So maybe your, you know, your arms are resting one arm on each leg um, and your hands sort of by, you know, on top of each of your knees. And um, so you're sort of in an open, welcoming sort of gesture and ask them if they'd be willing to try this a third time. And this time what I want them to do is I'm going to call out what each of these items is and I want them to notice what I'm saying and to, you know, be present there in the moment. And then I'm going to toss it over to them and I want them to see if with that open sort of welcoming posture, can they let the cards, you know, come over and do whatever they're going to do. And, and so, you know, you, you do the same sort of setup and, and some of the cards will, you know, land in their lap and stay there. And some of them will bounce off and fall to the floor and they'll do different things. Um, you know, and the client's job is just to be there and be present with, you know, and be in contact with each one of those experiences for however long it's there. Um, and then at the end of that, again, asking that question, And so if you were in this stance, you know, in this open stance, do you think, could you, at the same time that these cards are sort of coming over to you, could you give that talk at work? Mm. Um, You know, well, maybe, maybe a little better than I could in the other, you know, examples at least, or in this stance, could you read a book to your five-year-old? Well, yeah, I guess maybe I, you know, at least I would, I could get closer to it. Um, and so, you know, the idea, you know, we're not trying to get them to have any sort of any one particular experience, but it's just a physical metaphor to help sort of distinguish between 
different ways that we can respond when those thoughts and feelings and memories and sensations come up. You know, you can try to fight and do those active efforts at control. Um, you can try and distract or dissociate or numb out and not be in touch with what's going on. Um, or can you be open and willing to experience whatever's there for however long it sticks around mm. without either sort of holding on to it or pushing it away? Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like it. So how do clients so, usually respond to that? Um, you know, uh, I usually do it when I have a little bit of a therapeutic relationship. So where where we actually know each other um, enough that um, that they're willing to do something that's a little bit odd. I mean, you don't normally have your therapist tossing things at you. In yeah. So so you have to have a little bit of a relationship that's trusting and um, you know and and uh, and okay. Um, but they generally, you know, they find it sort of interesting. Um, and even if they don't get to the aha moment that, you know, if you were writing this exercise in a book, you might want the client to come to an aha moment Mm -hmm. to provide a good end to the story. But even if they don't get to that point, that's okay. Because it's really more about the, the process of trying to identify these different ways of responding. And, um, and it doesn't have to all make sense right at that moment, because I can, I can then tie back to it, you know, later in that session or the next session, I can say, okay. And so right now, you know, as this is showing up, um, so like John, you know, if you had done this exercise with your client, you talked about who had the panic attack in session, Mm -hmm. you might've been able to use even a little bit of physical shorthand with her in that moment to say, you know, and, and right now, what are you doing? And you can even sort of, you know, act it out with your arms, you know, are you trying to fight away those panic symptoms? Are you, you know, shutting down? Or can you can you be willing to let them be there, but not hold on to them, you know, just let them be there for however long they're there, and let them, you know, bounce off or fall off whenever they're ready. Mm. Just gives a little a little bit of a shorthand. And sometimes when people can relate to things physically, um, it can make it a little more understandable. How do you, this is going to be a totally specific question to you and your experience, Sonia, but I'm thinking of a, of a veteran who is having, you know, who has experienced maybe, let's say, some severely traumatic or violent episodes, you know, uh, you know in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever, and these, these flashbacks are just really severe. And, and you're, you know, you're using uh, um, three by five cards or some other type of metaphor to kind of get this concept of, of acceptance across. I'm not trying to come across as a doubter, but I'm saying that if, if I had to do this with someone who is experiencing kind of severe PTSD, I'd probably be really scared to try it for fear that they'd say, you have no idea. You're trivializing the severity of what I'm experiencing. Um, and so I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm trying to actually be an upper and have you tell me how this has worked maybe and surprise us with how this can actually work. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think that you have to choose your target for an exercise like this. You got to choose your target appropriately. So I would not, um, I would not early on with somebody with, you know, a significant, very real trauma history, 
I wouldn't be working with them to, um, you know, defuse or minimize their experience in, in any way. What I, what I might choose is something that's more of like a, a medium level target. Um, so maybe not focusing on their thoughts and feelings about the traumatic event itself. Um, but maybe, you know, coming up with examples of, um, other ways that maybe some of these struggles are showing up in their lives. Um, so, uh, you know, so with an interpersonal violence survivor, um, you know, where, where intimacy is really difficult, I might not have them do this with, um, you know, the actual thoughts and feelings and memories about the event itself, but instead some of the thoughts and feelings that show up when they're, you know, with their significant other or, um, you know, with other people who get physically close to them and it makes them uncomfortable. So I might target something uh, that is more in the here and now, as opposed to doing this targeting something that is related to the, the past trauma itself. Does that make sense? I see. Mm-hmm. I see. So instead of the flashback, it's the what they feel when they're with their loved one. Is that right? Right. Or yeah, exactly. So some situation where where anxiety or anger or whatever shows up for them. Uh, um, yeah. If we're if we're talking about like actually getting through a flashback, um, uh, and and this is maybe slightly tangential to acceptance, but but I think maybe to talk about how these things work flexibly in the real world. Sure. Um, it, you know, when we're talking about uh, about really significant experiences like people who have flashbacks or who dissociate or, you know, have gotten into patterns where they're self injuring. Um, you know, I'm, I actually don't jump to full on acceptance and willingness from the get go. I mean, I definitely tell them, you know, and work with them to identify that maybe as the target out in front of us. But what is more important to me for somebody who maybe is engaged in self injurious behavior or who um, is having a flashback or something like that is focusing on getting through the moment without making things worse. So I actually might be more likely to use some grounding skills or some DBT skills and focus more on getting the person back in the present moment and engaging in behaviors that are not going to make the situation worse. Um, And sometimes that might even be things like Um, you know, focusing on the feeling of your feet on the floor, or it might even be some distraction techniques. Um, And I talk about that openly with my clients, if it seems like they're confused by the fact that, you know, I've been telling them that acceptance and willingness is what we're moving toward. Um, And yet here I am helping them talk about ways to just get through the moment, which might be some distraction or grounding skills. And, um, you know, sort of talking about, yeah, there is that tension. What's most important to me is having you not do, um, you know, in the case of somebody who's who's hurting themselves, not do things that are going to hurt you and make things worse in the long term. Mm. What's more important is getting you through that moment so that then you can make some mindful choices about what to do next. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. So acceptance, it's like a, you know, it's something you're either doing or not doing, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other options. You know, just like the distraction is not a problem all the time. 
um, you know, there are other things that aren't just full on acceptance that sometimes are necessary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gotcha. At, le at least at first, at, at first. Sonny, you've mentioned in a lot of what you've been talking about, um, the therapeutic relationship, and it leads me to a question I had, um, that I wanted to ask you at some point today about, um, you know, if you look at some of the writings that, uh, folks in ACT have talked about, that there's this idea that, you know, the therapist sort of has, brings a certain kind of stance into the work that they do with clients. So from, from your experience, how, how do you, as a therapist, sort of maybe work to be accepting with your mm. clients in the room? Like, how do you sort of bring that stance that you're trying to teach sort of into the room and how you approach being with clients? Modeling it, right? Mm. Yeah, right. And, and I think it's such an important thing. And I think it's not just, um, well, it's modeling in a lot of ways. So I, I think, first of all, um, the therapist, if you're going to really work with your client on acceptance and willingness of some of these really terrifying or really painful things, I mean, as a therapist, I think you have to understand what that process is like yourself. Um, mm. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair, you know, as a therapist to be asking your clients to do something you're not willing to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I think there's a certain level of, um, practice or experience on the therapist's part to know what it is that you're asking your clients to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that happens both out of session as well as um, as well as in session. So in session, you know, therapy is a challenging experience for the client and for the therapist. And so um, so therapists may have all sorts of reactions themselves over the course of a session. You know, you might feel um, frustrated. You might feel sad um, listening to you know some of the things your client is telling you. You might feel anxious, like, you know, you might have thoughts like, oh, my gosh, I don't know how to help this person or I'm not going to be I've never had that to... thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a common uh -huh. that's, that's, that's because of your, your excellent training. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know what? Actually, when I, I've done um, a little bit of uh, writing on this subject with um, with Victoria Follett and with Andy Santanello, and, and when we looked at the literature about the types of emotions that trainees have in session. Do you know what the most common um, emotion is that um, uh, that studies have found that uh, that trainees, therapist trainees, have in in therapy? Fear. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, my own it's actually it's actually it's actually the one that gets in the way most in supervision is shame. Wow. Um, mm, yeah. yeah. Shame. The the feeling of sort of you know, that, that not doing a good enough job, that they've done something wrong, that they're, you know, they're not measuring up. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I think that in, in the therapeutic relationship, you as the therapist need to be able to recognize what's showing up for you. Mm -hmm. um, you need to work on being able to be mindful of it in the session without letting it overwhelm you, but, you know, be mindful of what's showing up for you, dealing with it in supervision, etc. Mm -hmm. um, but but the other thing that I think is is the other kind of modeling. Um, so hopefully you're modeling that you know you can um, you can sit with what's there and you're not getting fused with your own thoughts. Um, you know that you're not being experientially avoidant in session. Mm -hmm. But, but well, the, can I just, the, 
sorry, yeah, do you, if, if you could hold on to the thing you were going to say, um, that you're not getting um, sort of caught up in the things that your client are saying. What are some ways that you as a therapist might be experienced, not you per se, but a therapist might be sort of experientially avoidant in session? Like what are some cues that as a therapist, you're like not willing to be in touch with something that maybe the client's bringing into the room or something that you feel? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think that um, that some some easy things to notice are if you are more concerned with um, with following your you know predefined outline of what you thought you would do in a session. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're if you're more sort of focused on getting through the things that you have on your agenda, then then maybe that's a sign that you're not staying in contact with what's going on, mm-hmm. that you're not listening to the client. Um, if you find yourself, um, you know, drifting off thinking about um, something in your life, either past or present or future, um, and not listening to the client, it can sometimes be useful to go back and see, like, at what point did my thought process start going in a different direction? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and you might find that when the client mentioned, you know, this experience in their life or this thought or feeling that they were having, um, you know, therapists are human, too. So that triggers all sorts of stuff for us. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that if you're not focused on what's going on with the client, if you're back in your own head, um, then then maybe you need to work on becoming present and, and sort of accepting again there in the mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, One way that it shows up for me sometimes is if I notice that I sort of change the subject and it may be like yeah. you're saying, sort of keeping to your outline rather than sort of sticking with maybe something the client is bringing into the room that might be of importance or, um, yeah, or maybe dismissing something that they're sharing, you know, even if it seems like, uh, you know, it's for a good reason because you want to get a metaphor in or something. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> And, and, I, and the other thing that I was going to say about um, modeling that I think ties into what you're saying is that um, also watching your, um, your own reactions to the client's content um, or the client's experiences. So, like, I think that, I mean, this is just my opinion, but, like, I think it's fine if your client is, um, is sharing something really painful that happened to them. I have certainly been known to to cry in session with my clients. You know, not like breaking down in into sobs. Um, you know, but like definitely tears coming to my eyes. You know, be, when those times where I've been really connected with what the client is saying about their experience. Um, you know, and I think that that is. Um, that is a great way of modeling that um, that you're not afraid of what they're sharing. You know that this is a very real thing, and it brings up very real emo- uh, emotions. And and we have to remember that we're really modeling in that moment, hopefully, a different way that they can learn to respond to what's going on with them, mm-hmm. which is you know sort of that present, aware of what's going on recognizing, you know, having those emotional reactions, but also not getting like fused with it, not letting it overwhelm you, you know, can you experience those things, but still stay in the moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to just, I have to just validate that I have to struggle with this a lot early in my therapy training, because I, 
especially when I'm doing clinical outcome research work, I want the clients to get better. I want the clients to get better so I can feel like I'm becoming a good therapist. <laughs> I want the clients to get better because I want my data to kind of show that, that this stuff worked. And um, it's easy for me after a couple sessions to get nervous and say, oh, my gosh, this isn't working. I'm doing a bad job. Uh, you know, act isn't viable. And all these thoughts and feelings come to my head. And, um, and if I show that to the client, I'm kind of dead meat. <laughs> right. And, and when, well, right. And there are like more, um, there are sort of uh, more covert and overt ways that that can show up. I mean, you know, if here's, here's a funny thing that you can watch, Jen, you were asking for examples of um, as the therapist, how do you know, maybe if you're sort of feeding into avoidance, mm-hmm. if, if when your client starts crying, the first thing that you go to do is to pick up the box of Kleenex and hand it to them. Um, like watch, watch next time that happens. Like what is the function of what you're doing right in that moment? I mean, it may be that, yeah, you're being helpful and maybe the person has, you know, tears running down their face and it's not coming out of their nose and you're just being helpful. Um, and watch to see if there isn't sometimes something else in that moment as well about um, not wanting to be totally in that moment where there is a person, there's a human being that you care about in pain in front of you. You know, can you maybe just for a moment before you hand the person the Kleenex, like watch what it's like to sit there, you know, just for a minute with with the person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are these very subtle things that we do as therapists that I think sometimes we don't even know that we're doing that, um, that might sometimes subtly shut our clients down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think like John's saying, it, it can come from a very compassionate place. You know, usually people who go into, um, you know, wanting to be therapists, they do it because they, they want to help people, you know, not be in as much pain to alleviate suffering. Um, and so it's a very understandable thing, you know, especially in in normal society, you would, you know, try to do what you can to cheer somebody up and make them feel better. So it's a really natural thing to want to do to reassure somebody to um, to change the subject so they're not so uncomfortable mm. to um you know, to smile at them, to give them the Kleenex, to do something that just softens the moment just a little bit. And I and I guess from an ACT perspective, we just always want to be mindful about what the function is of what we're doing and whether, in fact, what we're doing, um, are we modeling acceptance or are we modeling, you know, you're making me really uncomfortable right now <laughs> and I... And, Right. And I don't know and I don't know what I'm going to do to get us out of this moment. So <laughs> let me change the subject or yeah, let me exactly. hand, let me hand you the Kleenex or let me reassure you or let me, you know, mm. focus on some some other little piece of what you're saying that's not really the heart of what you're saying. Gotcha. There's a lot to do. Is is the term rescuing kind of uh, associated with this dynamic? Is is that a term you're Yeah, I mean with? I, yeah, I, I mean, it's certainly something that, um, you know, that I, when I'm working with trainees, um, you know, it's, it's a word that I think resonates with them sometimes, you know, like it's not your job in the session to rescue your clients. I mean, from the ACT perspective, 
you have to assume that your clients are strong enough to handle what they have. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, they're walking around with it 24 hours a day anyway. You can't take it away from them. So, you know, you start from this just assumption that they are strong enough to have what they have already. Gotcha. And you don't need to rescue them from that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And reassurance is something that's so sort of part of the culture. You know, it's so easy to be like, oh, I, yeah, it's going to be okay. You know, like, you know, it's just sort of things we are sort of conditioned to say when we don't know what else to say because we know we can't really make it better. <laughs> right, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Exactly. And so, and, and so to sort of tie up what I've just been saying there, like, I think that it is, um, there's a really important piece about the therapeutic relationship where as the therapist, you you have the opportunity to model for your clients a different way of responding to their experiences and their con their content. So maybe they can see how you respond to it and that that gives them a different way of of beginning to understand how they might respond to their own experiences. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So one way one way that they might respond differently, Sonia, is it is it maybe something like, you know, instead of changing the subject or, you know, handing them the Kleenex, which might give the subtle thing like, okay, you know, clean yourself up, you're going to be fine. Um, maybe asking some questions about what what's happening for them, sort of getting into the experience rather mm. than pushing away from it or changing topic. Might that be a way to sort of show like, not only am I willing to be here with with you with this, but I'm curious as to like what what's happening inside you so I can sort of know it better and get to be with you better with it. Mm. Yeah, I I think that in in some situations that might be that might be a fabulous thing to do. I think in some situations just sitting quietly mm-hmm. um but but maintaining eye contact and that present connection. Mm-hmm. Um in some situations it's actually um you know, it's more irreverence or um, not buying into that their content is is true, you know, or is defining reality. So, like, if you've got somebody who's having, um, you know, some pretty significant anxiety in session or is telling you a story about something that happened in the past week, you know, I will often, so, like, you know, <laughs> I had once somebody in my office who, like was feeling so panicky that they literally felt like they were about to throw up in session. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're pulling the trash can over because they, they're, I'm about to throw up. And, uh, and my response was, that's cool. Um, <laughs> you know, because what I'm trying to model there is not that I want the person to throw up, but that like, wow, isn't it amazing what our minds can do? You know, isn't it amazing that here we are talking about this thing that's making you anxious and, um, and the situation is not even happening here. We're just talking about it. And yet it can be so, feel so real that it can get to the point where you feel like you're going to vomit. Like that, that's pretty amazing. Right. Right. Like you're not on a um, roller coaster. You're sitting in a chair. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Yep. Right. <laughs> yeah. I once did the, and, uh, I did once of the milk exercise and I had a client get sick and have to leave because he didn't like thinking about milk. <laughs> 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 but you were going to say something, Sonia. Sorry about that. What were you going to say? No, no, no. But but I think but I think like that's you know there are all sorts of different ways that you might you might model a variety of different ways to respond. You know, so Jen's talking about you know demonstrating curiosity and sort of investigating, um, or it could be just sitting quietly and mindfully. Or it can be a reverence. I mean, the form is not the issue. Um, 
it's it's the function of what you're sort of doing in that moment. Mm-hmm. So let's um, <clears throat> let's talk briefly about. You know, we've talked about um, the therapy room and we've talked about how to kind of teach acceptance and how to model it. What about outside the therapy room? How do you get, are there any tricks that you've found to kind of help helping the client take this stuff when they're, you know, between sessions and uh, apply it effectively and practice it? Any tips or tricks there? Uh, I don't know that I have any, any tricks. I wish I had some tricks, but, um, but you know, I think the most important thing is just, um, working with them on, on practicing. Um, you know, these aren't things, even if you could come up with all the cool exercises in the world, um, there's only so much that you can do in, you know, a 45 minute or even a 90 minute long therapy session. You know, what happens in that little session isn't going to necessarily generalize to the person's life. So you really want to work with them on having them generate um, uh, times that they're going to practice this in their real life outside the therapy session in between sessions. Okay. Um, so having them identify, you know, um, certain commitments that they can make to practicing Um and you may want to, um, you know, stay away from words like homework, things that have other <laughs> other connotations. But but finding opportunities for practice and having them, you know, commit to those. And I think, you know, early on, um, you know, willingness is something either you're doing or you're not doing. Either you're you're being present, you're accepting what's there, or you're not. There, you can't be sort of like halfway willing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're either doing it or you're not. And so, um, but that can sound really scary to the you know to somebody at least early on. Um, so the the um, the thing that I work with them on is you know can you do this? Can you find something small? You know, can you find a small example in your life, or can you do this for five minutes or for two minutes. Um, you know, the idea is to find, um, they can be really small examples, but if you do enough of them, then you build up that repertoire. Mm -hmm. So sort of another way of being in, in when something shows up that maybe the client isn't thrilled about having be present. Right. And you're probably going to have to do it over and over and Mm -hmm. over again. And with it, and and with, yeah. And maybe with a different, a couple of different um, experiences, maybe like maybe someone, you know, coming into therapy is like, yeah, sure. I'm willing to, you know, make a commitment to, I don't know, talking to somebody outside, uh, you know, the session, but I'm not as willing to, uh, you know, I don't know, um, go into a grocery store or something like that. You know, maybe they have things that they are sort of more or less sort of, uh, able to commit to doing in the beginning, but, um, so maybe practicing in different things, different areas, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we, you know, if we want these sorts of, um, changes to generalize, um, then the person's going to have to practice them in a wide variety of, um, of contexts and situations. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. So I, so I would say, John, you know, the short answer is start small, but very specific and have the person really identify specific places that they can practice this and they can limit it by situation. Maybe they pick a small, you know, not terribly difficult situation or they can limit it by time. Um, but they can't limit it by intensity. 
you know, if they're going to commit to, I'm going to do this situation and practice acceptance, or I'm going to practice for five minutes, then they need to really stay with it um, for the entirety of that piece rather than, you know, oh, this is more than I was expecting. I'm going to check out now because then all that does is reinforce that sort of avoidance agenda. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Are there any signs that, that a client's just not getting acceptance that they're that they're avoiding or, or just just not not tracking with the concept? Any any signs you can look for to to know that that they are or are not, you know, with the program? Um, you know, I guess in session, if, um, if, if we're working on something in session and maybe they're, they're talking about something painful, but, um, but there's not a whole lot of detail or, um, or they're talking really fast or they're, you know, talking about something in the, um, in the second person, you know, instead of saying like, and when I, am in this situation, I feel such and such. Um, you know, there are sometimes people who will say, and you know, when you're in this situation, you feel such and such. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a way of sort of disconnecting um, from the experience by sort of making it like one person removed. Mm-hmm. Um, like sort of the general human experience as opposed <laughs> to your own experience. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And some of those things that we were talking about that you can watch for on the part of the therapist is, um, you know, same thing, like shifting topics quickly, um, talking fast. Um, you can watch for body language sorts of things, like looking away or, um, you know, watching what the person is doing with their arms and legs. Or um, you can watch things like if, you know, people's, um, like their leg is bouncing up and down I'll work with them on seeing if they can let that go and come back into the present moment. Cause sometimes those, even those little physical behaviors are sort of functioning to distract or, you know, take away from being fully present. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and the, the one other thing I would say is that starting with acceptance is just not for everybody. It's not, um, it doesn't, for whatever reason, it doesn't always connect with every client. And so if you have a client where this is just really, really, really not connecting or the idea that control is a problem is really, they are just not seeing it. Um, then I think it's totally fine. To accept to, it. To accept to, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To accept, accept that, right? To accept that and, and stop trying to fight it. Don't try to, you know. I was kidding. Don't try to. Kidding. <laughs> no, but I know, but it's it Yeah. Um, um, you know, but to uh, to instead focus more on the values and committed action piece. And say, okay, so maybe we don't need to work right now on, um, on you know, getting in touch with your feelings. Um, or, you know, sometimes people are mandated to treatment. They don't want to be there and they don't think they have a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but, ev- but everybody has things in their life that could be better. So shifting focus from this sort of, you know, mindfulness, present moment, acceptance sort of piece and focusing more on the values and committed action um, for some people that just fits better mm. or, or for other people, maybe you need to work on identifying the values and, and trying to work on some committed action. And you know what, if, 
if they're committing to things and avoidance is a problem, then it will show up in that process. And, and then maybe you have a more tangible example of avoidance versus acceptance that you mm-hmm. can work with. Mm-hmm. Okay. And are there any rookie mistakes or pitfalls that are, that are common when someone new or even experienced is, is trying to, to work on the acceptance process and, uh, you know, it, it doesn't go so well. Are there any ways to, to not uh, <laughs> work on acceptance? And Jen, you can jump in there too if anything comes to mind. Well, I, I would say that the main thing that comes to mind is the thing that we were already talking okay. about, which is that um, that rescuing piece that, um, okay. you know, wanting like getting not wanting your client to feel bad. And so you then doing things to try to make them not feel bad in that moment. Um, and, you know, it's really hard to just just sit with somebody in pain. Um, I, I would say that's the most common thing that I see. What about you, Jen? I think sometimes it it may just be also this idea that, um, you know, as therapists, we really want clients to get better. So that can show up in, in sort of unhelpful ways. Like we're really fused with the idea that we have to get them to sort of be accepting in a particular moment. And, and you might work really hard to sort of... <laughs> you know, try for, for like having an aha moment on the client's part or, you know, or, or just trying to sort of force acceptance on people in, in subtle ways, you know, like Mm -hmm. just make space for that and everything will be better. You know, not that we would say that necessarily, but the the message may be there that, you know, because we want people to get better, that we might sort of focus on it in a way that's not as helpful and maybe as natural or unfolding as it might otherwise be. Gotcha. That makes sense. So, so why don't Sonia? Why don't you give us an example or two, maybe some just just a few case case studies or examples from your own therapy that kind of illustrate uh, acceptance in action, either positively or negatively, or however you want to illustrate. But let's just do a couple case examples. Sure. So, you know, I I think as we were preparing for this, um, and I was thinking about some examples. One example that came to mind that was really, really poignant um, was uh, one of my clients who had post-traumatic stress disorder and some other anxiety issues, and um, and he had not been to the store to buy new clothes for over 10 years, and um, and he realized that there, there was something coming up. There was an event in his life um, where it was going to be important for him to have um, some newer clothes to wear. And it was important to his son that he would get to this, um, to this event. And, um, and for him, it was, uh, it was so hard to, um, you know, to start that, that larger process of, you know, if I'm going to the store, I'm going to have to drive downtown. I'm going to have to find parking, I'm going to have to, you know, go to the store. I'm going to have to talk to people. I'm going to have to look. I don't even know what I'm looking for because I haven't been to the store to buy clothes in 10 years, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so for him, we sort of worked on um, identifying sort of a, um, a, uh, a graduated sort of hierarchy of things that he would start with. And, um, and so, you know, identified, well, so maybe the first time you can just – 
um, you know, go to the, to the store that's here in the hospital, the little gift shop here. And then the next time you can, um, drive to the store where you think you're going to buy the clothes for real and park, um, and sit there for 20 minutes and then drive away. And so we developed this whole hierarchy and, um, and we worked on the first step, which was going to the, you know, the gift store that just had a few things in the hospital um, as his first step and really sort of coached him on, you know, what he was going to do, how he was going to practice acceptance in that moment, that he was going to stay in there for at least five minutes. He was going to look at different things in the store. And he did that. And I think for him, that was such a practical um, way of practicing acceptance that although, um, and then he did that right before the group therapy session. So then he came to group therapy. He talked to everybody about what it was like. He got lots of, um, validation about, you know, great job. And, um, and he was able to talk about what was hard about it and actually just doing the one step in the hierarchy. Um, he actually then for the next step was able to just full on go to the store and, he bought a couple hundred dollars worth of clothes the, you know, the next week. Um, and yeah. And so, but I think setting it up as here are really, um, manageable bite size goals that you can practice with. And the, the, you know, what we're focusing on is the process of acceptance and willingness, not the outcome of buying the clothes. Although, you know, you got to have the sort of outcome to look toward to have it make sense. Um, but when he really got that practical experience of, oh, this is this is how I'm going to approach this, it it then let him translate it into the bigger behavior pretty quickly. Gotcha. Um, nice. Yeah. Very um, good. Yeah, and and I you know and the other example that comes to mind is with substance abuse urges because I've worked with lots of people with substance abuse problems, and so for them, um, what. You know, I think one of the problems is that people who get into a habit of using substances sort of go on autopilot. And and so a lot of times for their sort of practice or homework, what I encourage them to do is when they start having an urge um, or feeling, you know, physical signs that they think means that um, that they need to go use or have a drink to have them just practice for like five minutes sitting with those sensations Um sitting with those thoughts, those feelings, those urges, those bodily sensations, and really just being present and accepting of what's there. And then after five minutes, they can choose to use or not. I mean, that's up to them. Mm -hmm. But what I want to do is I want to start to extend out that, and it could just be for a minute at first, you know, um, start to extend that period of time where they're, you know, mindfully present in the here and now, with what's going on, and then from that place, making conscious choices about whether to use or not. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, think that's, I think that's really interesting that you mentioned that you know it's not your stance to to say that this person cannot use or that that's sort of the goal. It's more just to to, to practice being willing to have whatever's present for a certain period of time. And then it's up to the client to kind of make the choice next, you know, what's, what's in line with your values? How do you want to be? Um, but it's up to you, you know, like that, I think that's an interesting stance for a therapist to take. Yeah. I mean, well, and that's that whole thing about, um, workability and act, right. It's mm-hmm. like, it's a, it's not about my opinions or my morals or values. 
it's about what's important to that person and what's working for them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and they're the only ones who know whether or not it's working for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's getting them to where they want to go in life. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, and it's not that I don't have opinions, you know, I'm a human, I have opinions. Um, but in, in therapy, it's about what works for that client. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Very, very good. Wow. I think we've, uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Jen, did you have any follow up questions or thoughts before we kind of start, uh, summarizing? I think we've covered pretty much everything that, uh, that we set out to cover today. In a really nice way. Yeah. So any other, Sonia, any other issues or thoughts um, you about that, that if you were going to either summarize or, um, or add to any other finer thoughts on acceptance before we kind of start summarizing? You know, I guess that if I just had to sort of things that we talked about, um, you know, so I think that I would underscore the the fundamental role of acceptance and willingness in in act, um, but but to recognize that that's not that's not a dogmatic sort of position. You know, I mean, one of the things that I talked about is that although acceptance is really fundamental, I'm not saying that you have to accept everything all the time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that it's about workability and what's required in that moment. And I guess I just want people to have in their range of things that they can do in any given situation to have acceptance be one of those things that they can do when that's, you know, what is going to be the most effective thing. Um, And sort of and sort of recognizing that it's something that, you know, whether you're a therapist or a client or somewhere in between, you know, that acceptance is something that you just have to practice over and over and over and I think, um, you know, probably for the entirety of one's life, there are going to be continue to be opportunities to practice and to try it in a new situation and something that you weren't expecting. And, and even when there are setbacks and, and maybe you, you realize that you haven't handled a situation in an accepting way, um, sort of seeing even those quote unquote setbacks as opportunities to learn and be curious and, and practice again. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, so in oh, other words, that last thing you just said about um, that, that sort of ties into the, to maybe sort of self-compassion, you know, like recognizing that you're a human and that there are going to be things that happen. And, and if you can sort of make some space for that, you have an opportunity to learn rather than focusing on maybe the failure, <laughs> you know, that there are things in life aren't always going to go the way you want and you may not always respond to situations in the way that, you know, in an accepting way or, or a mindful way or whatever, um, that, you know, we're all human. We all, we all have those moments where maybe we don't respond in the way we would like to, but that it's an opportunity to, to try again, sort of coming back to that stance of the client is, you know, able to deal with whatever is there and sort of, sort of whole no matter what. Right, and that 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 applies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, tell us. Uh, so, I, I imagine you cover acceptance in your book. Is that right? Uh, Essentials of acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah. What I what I tried to do in the book was to really distill down. Uh, you know, for somebody new to the approach or who wants just really sort of a. Um, a distilled down to the core pieces that at least, you know, in the world, according to Sonia, 
that I, I think are important, you know, in the, the six core processes, in the therapeutic relationship, and then giving some specific examples with working with, you know, anxiety disorders or um, mood disorders or substance use. It's basically sort of if you were if you came to a, a workshop with me or if you were in supervision with me for a period of time, it's probably, you know, the whatever clinical wisdom I have to impart, it, I tried to put it in there. So this book is mostly for clinicians, is that right? Uh, yes, it's mostly for clinicians. Okay. Yep, clinicians or trainees or, or, or people who are just trying to decide if, you know, ACT is something that they're interested in and that they'd want to learn more about. Hmm. Excellent. Well, again, we'll, ha- we'll have a link up to that uh, on our webpage so mm-hmm. that everyone who wants to see it can check it out. Um, so, Sonia, I guess I guess we're coming to a close. So can can I just thank you for this wonderful time we spent together and for your helping us out on this very important process? Oh, absolutely. I um, I listened to the first two podcasts that are online already, and I really enjoyed them. And, you know, I'm really appreciative of the, the service that, that you both are providing to the community, um, you know, helping to, to provide just another way that, that people can learn about ACT. So I want to thank you guys as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm so thrilled to have you on, Sonia, because you were you were you and Sue Arcillo were the first ACT people I ever met. <laughs> so uh, you were sort of the the entrance into ACT, and one of the reasons why I came to UNR to study. Um, so it's really been just wonderful for for me to to talk with you about these processes too, because um, you were my first experience with ACT. <laughs> <laughs> so well, just personally, it was great. <laughs> Yeah, well, and it's it's super cool to me as well to have gotten to know you, you know, when when you were a much younger Jennifer Plum and, <laughs> and, and, and pre grad school, to, yeah, <laughs> pre grad school, and you know, you and I didn't cross in grad school to so to sort of see you emerge from that and um, and you know see what what an expert in your own right you are now is um, it's just it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Jen's an I had expert. Good teachers. I had good teachers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sonia. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much. I'll just remind our listeners. And, and Jen, thank you, of course, for always co-hosting so well. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> I'll remind our listeners that the website is contextualpsychology.org slash podcast. That's where you can um, listen to this uh, podcast directly or make comments and provide feedback. I'll also remind everyone that Act in Context has its own Facebook page that you can go up and uh, see what the new episodes are and make comments. And we are optimistic that by the time this is released, this podcast will be easily subscribable from iTunes and um, definitely, uh, you know, in the future, uh, you know, people six months or a year from now who are listening yeah. uh, will be able to go to iTunes, if not immediately, uh, to subscribe. And that's the easiest way to listen to this. Have an iTunes or some other type of MP3 player, subscribe through some type of uh, uh, media player like iTunes or something else so that this stuff can just automatically download to your mobile device and you can listen uh, at your convenience no matter what activity you're doing. So, just a couple reminders, but thanks again to you guys for for um, being with us today and to our listeners, and we look forward to hearing from you guys again soon. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. 
The Act in Context podcast is a production of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Please check us out at contextualpsychology.org slash podcast. Music was brought to you by Armory.